Hello listeners, my name is Yash and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today we are delighted to be joined by Simon Ridpath, the managing partner at Charles Russell Speechless. Simon has a rich background in legal practice, having handled a variety of legal matters, including insolvency law, early in his career. His leadership at Charles Russell Speechless is marked by a strategic focus on private capital and a commitment to enhancing client relationships. Simon, can you walk us through your journey from handling insolvency law at a smallish Bedford firm to your current position as the managing partner at Charles Russell Speeches? Uh, I certainly can. It feels quite a long journey when you put it in that context. But effectively, my career has, has largely been based on great exposure to a wide and diverse mix of people from very early on in my career. So I started and trained at a, a regional firm in Bedfordshire and that included as a trainee doing duty solicitor work at police stations, immigration work and I was lucky enough to have my own clients from the day I started as a trainee because we used to take legal aid to our walk-in appointments and the trainees were responsible for those. So from a very early stage you learned some of the key skills which was the ability to listen to people and to really understand what they need from you and in many instances it was less about legal knowledge and background and more about being able to relate to them and identify the problem and help them find a way through it and insolvency law and indeed my subsequent roles largely mirror the same things so insolvency by its very nature is not sector agnostic it happens to everyone unfortunately in difficult times and therefore the ability to learn an awful lot about a business or a person and the circumstances and the creditor makeup and trying to see solutions for that business required you to approach things with a very open mind and to really be concentrated on solutions and outcomes. And that's the approach I take to managing the firm today. It seems obvious that early exposure to clients can help your growth as a lawyer. Do you think it hampered it in any way? I think it has the potential to give you a level of responsibility that you may not necessarily be prepared for. So I think it's critically important that if you're exposing junior lawyers to clients early on, there is the right support network around them. I was very lucky throughout my training and early career that I had really responsible partners and senior lawyers around me who gave me the opportunities but always made me feel supported. I think if, if that support network isn't there, then it, it can feel really challenging because it can feel like a lot of responsibility. People are coming to see you about things that really matter in their lives and that can weigh on you if you don't feel prepared to do so. And, and that feeling of sort of still learning on the job never really goes away. You just become better at masking it as you get older. Sure. And in terms of weighing or challenges and achievements, so Charles Russell's Features has been working on articulating its position as a private capital focused firm. How does CRS differentiate itself in the industry and what role do you play in shaping its direction? Dealing with the last point first, so ultimately the managing partner of the firm or our firm is responsible for designing and implementing the strategy. So ultimately the buck stops with me, but it is far from being a one person mission. So for me it was, it was having an idea as to where I felt we were going and in, in some ways law firm strategy can be quite obvious really it's made up of the capabilities of the people you've got the clients you act for the jurisdictions you're within and and for us we were blessed to have a really strong history 
So the firm itself is the product of a merger that's 10 years next year, but both component firms have hundreds of years of history and some clients, not, not living <laughs> clients, hundreds of years old, but families and institutions we've acted for for many years. So longevity is a, is a real strength. Some tradition and history is important, but most importantly, we had a really rich mix of, of skill sets and irrespective of whether you were a corporate lawyer, finance lawyer, litigator, private client advisor, one thing we had in common was the way that we, we worked with clients and the longevity of those relationships. And that came down to the style and approach. Over time, we recognized the opportunity, particularly since the global economic crash of 2008, that the global economy is really driven increasingly by privately held capital and institutional finance and the like is harder to come by and the most successful businesses, investors and enterprises are often built on that longer term investment which comes from an individual, a family, even a a sovereign wealth fund investing because they are able to take a longer term view which sort of lives in synergy with our approach to how long we sit alongside our clients and so putting together that that approach, the fact that there is an abundance of of transactional work across the globe being driven by uh, private investment, whether it's equity or or other forms of investment, meant that our sweet spot of being able to advise individuals, their families, their businesses, investments, and protecting those across our particular geography, it sort of all came together around that private capital piece. We'll move on to some industry-focused questions. Of course. So more generally, there's been growing speculation around the use of AI technology in screening and evaluating training contract and vacation schemes, vacation scheme applications in legal recruitment. How is Charles Social Speeches navigating this trend and have there been discussions or initiatives regarding the use of AI in legal processes? I think, I think in terms of use of AI, I mean, it's a fantastic opportunity. Technology always presents an opportunity. The challenge for individuals like myself who is not a technologist is understanding the true capacity of the technology and I think that's that's what a number of firms are working on at this point in time. The fact is there is undoubtedly scope for efficiency, value add, greater connectivity with clients and, and that, that's the trend of technology generally over my career. Technology improves speed of turnaround, accessibility, the days of being able to send a fax and go home knowing that no one's going to respond to you until the following day, disappeared with the advent of email. So I think technology has constantly improved speed. I think specific to AI in in our business, it's been used in litigation processes for years and we're no different to other firms in that sense. So search functions, document management systems, AI within that has always enhanced and sped up the process for people and enabled large searches of big database to to be carried out efficiently. I think in terms of recruitment, and that that specific point is something I've talked about in the past, which is that particularly with the advent of of chat, you've you've started to see people who, I mean, in my view at least, the first person who used chatbot to draft their application, I think deserves a gold star for innovation. But the problem with that is if you're the second, third, fourth or fifth person, chatbot repeats the same terminology and phraseology identically. So you can quite quickly spot as a human reading those applications where someone has perhaps relied on the technology to do the work rather than themselves. So I think how people use technology is the big challenge for us as a business moving forward. 
interesting. I think the, the reality of the position is that I, I think if you take a step back and look at law as an industry, one of our sort of key bastions is, is the mystery around knowledge. So we utilise the fact that we know the law as one of our key selling points. I think what chatbot and AI more generally will do is make that knowledge more readily available and the skill will come from the implementation, interpretation and strategy, which although technology will learn that over time, people and particularly experience still has the critical part to play. So I think for businesses more generally and and law firms in particular, the challenge is making sure you stay relevant in terms of the fact that you'll have more knowledgeable clients, i.e. they may know 90% of the answer, but the skill is whether the answer that technology has given them is right in all of the circumstances and, and predicament that they're in using that experience. So for us, that, that personal relationship and empathy and ability to sort of sit alongside someone is the acquired knowledge that actually technology can't yet learn. But using the efficient the knowledge delivery systems that AI could present and harnessing that with people is the really exciting piece. Uh, do you see AI as a, more as a disruptor in terms of allowing new slash different law firms to come in with a different approach or do you see it more as a crowbar to allow for more efficiency within a law firm or I, an existing law firm? I, I think it can be both and I think it does largely depend upon your client and sector focus. So I think if you if you had more of a commoditized business where actually volume is an important component, you could see AI really having a, a really quite significant impact. I think the degree to which it is much more nuanced and much more bespoke each time you go around, then obviously the AI is learning all of the time, but it will still need to learn the first time every time. So I think undoubtedly everyone will benefit from the efficiencies. I think you will start to see in the same way, I mean, a a good example unrelated to law is, is Purple Bricks, for example, as an estate agency which was launched 10 years ago and was deemed to be the death of traditional estate agents because you could do it all online, you could produce costs and they had fantastic analytics, website and everything else and that sold for a pound three months ago having effectively not succeeded. But what it did succeed to do was enhance and change the existing marketplace. So if you look now at most estate agencies or Rightmove, which is a byproduct of Purple Bricks, it's forever changed the industry. So law is not immune to that and will change and we'll look back in 10 years time and say, that was the bit that started it. So we'll get disruptors, but I think more generally speaking, there it's how people businesses adapt and make better use of the really human elements of the product that will define us. Sense. So having advised and sat beside clients who've been with CRS for multiple decades or generations, What lessons do you think clients who haven't had great wealth for decades or generations could learn from them? I think an element of it is patience and sticking to what you know in some sense. So, I mean, that doesn't sound particularly exciting. Two qualities that couldn't be further from exciting. But actually, that ability to adapt is really important. I mean, we act for a number of large urban estates in London and they are constantly evolving constantly evolving so whether it's through planning or internet access or marketing campaigns or pedestrianized zones or any of those sorts of things the fact that you are effectively and always have been a holder of real estate in central london and that is worth a certain amount of money exploiting that 
and meeting demand and having foresight to see what's coming down the line means that they're constantly sticking to what they know in terms of this is what we're about. We're not going to suddenly become a retail expert or, or only operate in a certain area. But what they're always trying to do is, is look ahead and see the challenges that are coming. And I think people who back their own judgment and and genuinely become knowledgeable about the areas that they have either invested in or how they've developed their wealth and are prepared to back their own judgment, but also know their limitations, i.e. when they get advisors involved or when they bring external help in to help them with their own businesses, they are the ones that tend to be most successful and they're constantly prepared to evolve. But they don't set unrealistic deadlines for that. So it's that patience long game, but sort of understanding what you are and what you're not. Very interesting. There's a growing emphasis on ethical practices and social responsibility in the legal sector. How can law firms foster a culture of ethics and social responsibility? And what are the long-term benefits of such a culture for the legal community and society at large? Taking the latter point, I think, I think we all want to be part of a responsible society. We want to be contributing to society. And increasingly, as we see society change, you spend a lot of time at work, you work for longer. You want to be in a position where you're not, you're not necessarily making compromises between your own personal beliefs and the way you contribute and the way you can do so through your working environment. So for us, we want to be a responsible business. And the virtues of that are that People enjoy spending time in the business. They feel proud of the business they work for. And clients are proud to work alongside us because we have common goals. So I think the advent, which I also think is is partly a product of COVID, actually, and the acceleration of that is largely because the whole world has been shocked. We had a shock to the system that was COVID. And whether it's carbon issues and, and the environment, whether it's sustainability of what we're trying to do and achieve, or whether it's just good governance, which all, all lawyers love, they're important elements of, of society at large. And ultimately, it, it binds us together and it brings us closer to our people and clients. So I think there's a bit of a stereotype that maybe older clients who've had their habits for longer, have succeeded with them, might provide more assistance as to you know, changing their habits for ESG purposes, do you find that there's a correlation between, let's say, how long a client has been successful for and the resistance that they might, or how critical they might see, how critically they might see an ESG policy? policy? I, I mean, I think, I think stereotypes generally exist because there's an element of truth. But I'm also lucky enough that I get to meet a number of our clients and indeed have recorded a couple of podcasts of our own with, with some of our longest standing clients some of whom are relatively senior in terms of their careers and life experiences. And what you note from them is that actually they are constantly evolving and constantly challenging where they've come from. And it's driven by philanthropy and giving back. Probably the best example is is Sir Martin Smith, who very successful in the world of broking and ran a very successful financial services business for many, many years, which I think he managed to sell three times over, which is pretty impressive feat but his passion his personal passion was the arts so when he finally decided to hang up his boots in terms of financial services he set up a a philanthropic trust and charity to support the performing arts and got his family involved his, his children were involved and they sat down with him one day about five six years in and just said look dad I think it's important you bring other trustees on board 
and he sort of slightly taken aback and said, but I was sort of doing this for you as much as anything else. And they said, look, we love what you're doing. We love the project and everything else. It just doesn't really matter that much to us. And so he sat back and said, well, what matters to you? And they said, climate change and the environment. So he completely shifted his focus. It wasn't his own personal passion, but his passion is on his children and sustainability. And he approached climate science and the research into it as a business. So he wanted a return on investment. He wanted to make sure that they were best in class. He wanted to know how the money was being spent. And I suspect he drove the trustees pretty hard in that regard. But the Smith Institute, now twin with Oxford University, is the world's leading climate science institute and responsible for most of the climate science out there. And it's an example of somebody who is more senior in life, has, has achieved a very successful first stage of their life uh, in business, but actually um, has evolved completely and driven that passion through uh, what is something very linked to sustainability and ESG. You mentioned the valuable advice from Christopher Harlow at Speechy Belgium about ensuring the advice given meets the client's needs. Across the legal industry, are there notable practices or initiatives that you've observed which overly neglect this principle of client centricity? Yes, is the short answer. The best, and Chris gave me that advice in the context of something that is particularly common to anyone who's worked in a law firm or worked in any contentious space, which is actually becomes a very personal tip for tat battle. So if you're negotiating a contract, you're arguing a piece of litigation, very quickly it can be the personalities of the lawyers rather than the interests of the clients that take precedent. And Chris was always very good at just saying, well, you're making that amendment, why? You're doing it because you think it's the wrong thing. Does the client really care about that? Where, where is their focus? And I think the worst examples of it are when you do see litigators who become personally dragged into things. And look, it's easily done. I mean, some areas of, of law are extremely emotive. Buying and selling businesses are not the same as saving people's lives or dealing with children issues or family issues, which are hugely emotive. And you can get drawn into it because your clients themselves are hugely emotional about the subject matter. But actually that piece of advice there and most areas of complaint about lawyers you see are where they become personally invested, but not in a good way. Makes sense. For individuals aspiring to transition into law consulting, what are some key considerations or steps that they should take to prepare for some, such a career path? I, th- I think it's critically important to know why you're doing it. So obviously law as a profession is a pathway to many things, but actually having an area of interest beyond the law, because the law is fascinating of course, but actually being able to utilise or deploy your skills as a lawyer or within a law firm business but bringing sector knowledge or a particular passion for something makes you so much more effective. So I think doing law for the sake of it requires a certain level of calling, but some of the best lawyers are hugely knowledgeable about their subject matter beyond the law that surrounds it, because law is the framework, it's not the subject matter. What would you say is your speciality, your special interest that made you such such an effective lawyer? I, I love interaction with people. So actually I wanted to be involved in a career that allowed me to access people and engage with people and therefore areas of law where you're able to sit in a pine or write lengthy opinions of the like which some people are are tremendously skilled at and it's an important area of, of your development as a lawyer that didn't appeal to me but the ability to mix with people to engage with them and, and really try and problem solve 
was important. I mean, my own personal interests are around a whole range of things from sport to other leisure activities and the like. But essentially, insolvency gave me and restructuring gave me an opportunity to be involved in a massive breadth of business. But actually, people are at the heart of nearly one of them. So even if you are a manufacturer of widgets, ultimately, the guy who invented the widget, the person who helps develop the production line and then the sales team around it are all key components of making that business successful and understanding the strengths and weaknesses of a management team within a business that's struggling is something that I think I enjoy doing it and hopefully over time you get reasonably good at it. Makes sense. And lastly, what advice would you offer to student listeners specifically? What can they do to make their entry into the legal field more competitive? perhaps especially due to the rapidly evolving landscape of the legal practice? I think obviously a grasp of technology and the potential for technology is is going to be important. I think it's almost a prerequisite now because it's such an important part of everyone's lives but students today are so well prepared in terms of the use of technology for research and study purposes. I think that's an important part. I think listening is a very underrated skill and a critical skill to retain as a as a lawyer. It, you should never jump to assumptions and conclusions and actually, whether it's listening to learn from those around you or more particularly listening to what a client is really saying to you as opposed to what they may be saying out loud are critical skill sets. But I think ultimately it's loving what you do. So there are elements of everyone's job that are perhaps less enjoyable than others. I'm not asking everyone to become an evangelist in that sense, but I think at the heart of it, to be really good at anything, you have to have a level of interest and a level of passion at what you do. So I think understanding how you can bring your particular passion and deploy it within a legal context or for a certain client type stands you in good stead to be really successful. Makes sense. Thank you very much for your inspiring advice and your time to share your amazing insights with us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode. Stay tuned and subscribe for more content.